Let's see, what do I tell you about uh, Professor Henry Louis Gates, Jr.? My favorite uh, Skip Gates story is, uh, he's seven years old, and what he decides he wants, more than anything else, is one of those Polaroid, oh, uh, my friend Billy Theodore's mom is here in the audience. Um, Gene, hi. Um, he wants a Polaroid instant camera, one of those, uh, you know, remember these, that you take the picture, and then you'd open it up, and you'd pull out something, and then you'd have to wait and hold it in your hand for seven seconds, eight seconds, nine seconds, like for two minutes, and then you'd peel it up, and then it would be the... So he wanted one of these. His father, Henry Louis Gates, the elder, was not inclined to give him this gift. Now, here's what Skip did. He, he got under the bed of his father before his father went to sleep. His father goes into bed, falls asleep. He waits for his father to... Then... He's seven years old, but assuming a voice which he thinks approximates God's, as deep as he could possibly get, he stands next to his father's ear, and he says, Henry, Henry, this is your conscience. Buy that boy a Polaroid camera. <laughs> uh, since that time, he's become a regular contributor to the New Yorker magazine and to the New York Times. Before that, he was at The Village Voice. Way before that, he was at Time Magazine. He's written any number of books. Most recently, with Cornell West, he's the author of The Future of the Race and a personal memoir called Colored People, both from uh, Knopf. I believe they'll be outside. You can buy some, and he'll sign them and stuff. He's the chairman of the Afro-American Studies Department at Harvard, which has been growing dramatically under his uh, administration. He got Cornell West in from Princeton and William Julius Wilson just in or coming in from Chicago. Before that, before Harvard, he taught English or and African-American studies at Duke and Cornell and Yale, though not at the same time. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a member of the board of the Lincoln Center Theater, uh, the Whitney Museum. He's got one of those genius uh, things from the MacArthur Foundation. He's got 18 honorary degrees, but tonight we will find out if he got the camera. So let's have Skip Gates. Skip, if you're behind one of these doors. Let's uh, pull it over. So that's like the this? question. Did you, get, did you get the Polaroid camera? Oh, the first thing I want to say is you're crazy. <laughs> that's the craziest introduction I ever had in my life. Uh, no, I never got the camera. You did not? No, never. But I bought a um, Polaroid camera. They made a few years ago a single lens reflex yes. Polaroid. And I was in this camera shop on Mass Ave at Harvard Square about a month ago. And I heard this guy telling this woman, that Polaroid made it the best camera ever, but it was selling so well that they took it off the market because it was wiping out one of their uh, cheaper models. And so, they, but you could get one. And I was at a reception, I met an official from Polaroid, and he gave me a number where I could get one of these cameras. And it came about uh, four days ago. And in fact, it came... Well, this is a current event story I was it, telling you. It was the current event story, and it came just in time for my father's birthday. He was 83, and we took pictures of my father with this <laughs> Polaroid camera. So. All right, well, I want to I bring you back a little bit to what I will call the Mora Gibson horse low fearsome foursome swordfish integration incident. Uh, just to back this up, who is Mora Gibson? When did you fall in love with her? And who was her dad? Okay, they're all pseudonyms. Oh, they are? Yeah, because... Okay. Um, My source is one of your books. Yeah, that's right, but the legal department at Knopf said that I had to uh, call them and give them... You say Knopf, too. Yeah, so does Knopf. They do? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> I thought it was like knee, you know. I thought that, you know, like, like some people would call Barbara Streisand, Barbara Streisand. Uh, yeah. But anyway, so, but the, it's, yeah. It's more like not. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so let's call them these names, because I guess we have to. Yeah, we have to, I guess. Okay. But I get mixed up. All right, yeah, so I'll help you. If I slip, we can uh, edit. Maura Gibson is whom we're calling the girl. Yeah, I graduated Piedmont High School in 1968. It's a public school in Piedmont, West Virginia, population 2000. And I went to, uh, I'd gone to Exeter briefly, and I dropped out. I was terribly homesick. And so, um, and I'd heard about Exeter because I went to this Episcopal church camp in West Virginia, in the Diocese of West Virginia, and it was full of preppies. This is the summer of 65, 66, and 67. And uh, these preppies were so cool, and I wanted to be a well-educated person. And so I asked this kid, who the coolest one there, his name was Mark Foster Etheridge III. And I asked Mark, from uh, Gross Point, Michigan, he went to, well, and I said, where do you go to school? He had just, uh, we had a, a campus uh, magazine, newspaper, um, at, during the at the church camp. And he was the editor, and he had just attacked the bishop for being a poor sport. The bishop used to cheat all the time in softball and tennis. And he had nerve enough to say this out loud. So I said, that's my man. You know, I want to go to school where he goes. So I said, Mark, where do you go to school? And he said, Exeter. And I said, Exeter, great. How do you spell it? X, what, you know? <laughs> like, knop. You got it. And so I, I um, applied to Exeter, and I got in. I went up there with a great deal of fanfare. My parents bought me this wonderful electric royal typewriter. This is 1967. And I stayed um, long enough to plug the typewriter in, I guess, and then unplug it. I was so homesick, and I went back home. So I finished my senior year in Piedmont, and I went to a junior college, Potomac State College of West Virginia University, which is five miles from Piedmont in the county seat. And there was Moira Gibson. And uh, so we started dating. She was actually, she was in love with a friend of mine, and she would call me, we'd talk about him, and, uh, you know, and I'd say, <laughs> basically, I'd think, you know, forget that chump, you know, the kid is here. <laughs> And we started dating, and it was a big deal because she was white and I was black, and it's a predominantly white town. Yes, ma'am. Louder? Okay, we can. Is this a little bit better? Is that better? Okay. okay. And um, she was. Um, uh, her father was the postmaster or a postman yeah. in Kaiser, West Virginia, and um, it was a big deal. And we, I had a lot of threats. The white black thing. Yeah, the white black thing. This is 1968. So you would go up to kiss this woman we're calling Maura in a car, and there was a man whom you describe in the book as Horse Low. Yeah, that was Horse Low is now dead. That was his true name. That was his true name. He had a house on the edge of the Colored Cemetery in Kaiser, West Virginia, and we would all go parking in the in the Colored Cemetery, and um, he would sneak up and you know watch you for a while and then beat on your the, the window. Oh, he'd watch first, yeah. beat second. I see. Right, but you didn't realize you were being watched to after. This huge man, they didn't call him horse for nothing. This huge idiot, you know, racist voyeur uh, <laughs> who built his house there just so he could watch people make out, you know. <laughs> I'm convinced of that. And the complexion of this particular makeout situation was new to him, I guess, in this area. Well, no, there were people, we called it sneaking and creeping. Sneaking, sneaking and creeping, or else being a midnight warrior. I see. Now, the situation gets interesting because, first of all, there's this one thing in the book that I thought. Not only are you the first sort of notorious interracial couple in this area, with all that that comes with, but you're, you're the driving. Couple, first couple to go out in the, in the sunlight. In the, right. right. And so you, you even drive to meet her in Rehoboth Beach over in Delaware Shores. Where right. she's, now, here's something. You say that one time when you're walking along the beach, 
I know this has nothing to do with anything, but it just I kept wondering about it. A white guy sicked his Saint Bernard on us. Yeah. So now I'm thinking, sicked a Saint Bernard. What does a Saint? Did he come and give you brandy? Did he lick you? <laughs> I've never, I have never thought of a Saint Bernard as being in any way sickable. No, he said, you know, attack or some word like that, and then yeah. the dog lunged, and he pulled him back. It was just a frank. You had, you had a lunging Saint Bernard. Yeah, and it's a lot to lunge. <laughs> All right, so now this woman Gibson's daddy decides instead of being a postmaster, he wants to run for mayor. That's right. He decides in the middle of the year for some unknown reason to run for mayor of this town. Now, does the town know that his white daughter is seeing you? Oh, yeah. Everybody. The town knows if you cross the street. It's a village. Everybody knows. Now, would this help? This is 1967? 68. 68. Would this help or hurt his electoral chances, would you guess, at the time? I figured he was dead meat. <laughs> and I felt bad about it, too. So, now, while the campaign is going on, you, then comes this issue called the fearsome foursome integrating the sort of let's just back up there who are the fearsome foursome okay the fearsome foursome with three other black guys and I and we took the name from the uh, the LA Rams I think the LA Rams had this defensive four defensive guys um, it was Deacon Jones the secretary of defense big guy and they were called the fearsome foursome and so we became the fearsome foursome too and one of us Roland Fisher uh, Rodney Galloway Jerry Price we called him Mo soul Mo and Roland Fisher had a 1959 Chrysler uh, that he had gotten from his brother, convertible. And it leaked so badly, we'd have to get masking tape, you know, change the masking <laughs> tape once a week. We ran around together. We had a really good time. And I would buy, I had the nicest room. So they spent a lot of time at my house. And I had a stereo. We used to order jazz albums and soul albums from uh, the Record Club of America, which is based in, um, out of the Schwann catalog, that old Schwann catalog yeah, in yeah, Yorktown, yeah. Pennsylvania. So I would order things that I would read about in Ebony Magazine, like Coltrane or Aretha, of course, and Marvin Gaye, because you couldn't buy too much black music in Piedmont, West Virginia. Piedmont, West Virginia is basically a mill town uh, populated by Irish people and Italian people. For whom Mr. Gay was not one of their normal... No, it was okay, but they were big in the country. You know, WWVA right, right. was the biggest uh, record station around there. Now, what is the Swordfish? Well, it was, uh, I could say that, it was a, um, a sort of, um, you know, nightclub for teenagers, um, college kids, called um, the Blue Jay. And it was populated by, you know, frequented oh, by the white sword, the Blue Jay was changed into the swordfish in, in the Sudan. Okay, That's so we right. can call it the Blue Jay. We can call it the Blue Jay. All right. They're not going to come get me up in New York. <laughs> I don't think so. So the, at the Blue Jay was the sounds, no, this, is, this is where white kids gather. That's right. right. Were you allowed in? No. No. Unless you were playing on the, in the band. It was like the Cotton Club or something. I mean, it was like a time machine. And the Sounds of Soul was playing there, and Eugene Taylor, who was a basketball star, uh, he had a great voice, but he could never remember all the words. He wasn't all that bright, but he, had, he was a fantastic <laughs> singer. I wanted to give him cue cards to help him out. You know? So now, Eugene, Eugene Taylor and the Sounds of Soul are going to be at the Swordfish, where they can sing, but you can't come. That's right. Meanwhile, the girlfriend is daddy's running for me. That's right. And the fearsome four decide to make a night of it. You're going to integrate. What were you going to do? What was the plan? Well, we were going to get thrown out. We knew that what the, the plan was that we were going to go in long enough for them to throw us out so that we could call the uh, State Human Rights Commission, which we subsequently did, and have them shut it down, which subsequently happened. So tell me what happens. The four of you arrive, you get into the parking lot, you get out of the car, and what happens? You remember black lights? Black lights? Yeah, remember black strobe lights? Yes, yes, yes. And black lights, remember? Yes. In the drug culture, you remember that, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> 
vaguely. So we walk in, we're terrified. There's smoke everywhere, Budweiser, those Budweiser beer bottles everywhere, uh, people with um, cowboy boots on. You know, it's the country, man. I mean, it's Appalachia. And they look at us, they can't, it's surreal. I mean, I'd never, I had no idea what it would be like. And um, these crackers smoked <laughs> around through all of this smoke. And they looked at us, we had big afros. I had a two foot high afro. <laughs> And it, one guy looked at us and said, God damn. You know I mean? <laughs> and, um, so I, you were strobed too, I presume. Yeah, we were all strobed. So this whole thing is a completely surreal experience. It was, I want to do it as a movie, man. It would be great. <laughs> so you four walk in and present yourselves, blink, 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 and yeah. there they all. Does it take a little while for everybody to see everybody else? Yeah, it took them a while to shut their mouths. You know, everybody's <laughs> mouth flew open, and they were looking at us, and it was uh, frozen strobe-like activity. Everyone froze in their tracks, but it was all being stroked. And so we froze, too, because we were trying to protect ourselves. We knew we were going to be thrown out. And the next thing I know, Roland's head, he had this beautiful afro. It was, it was shaped like a basketball. Mine never would. I always had flat splotches of mine. But Roland somehow had the texture of his hair that he could get into this ball. And his head hit the wall like a basketball. And I remember seeing that strobe, seeing his head bounce off. It was like slow motion. So we picked him up. and and gathered around and made our way to the door because we had made our point. <laughs> so now you are, you, you, you are thrown out. You then, do you go to the local hospital or whatever to repair the damage on Roland or not? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't that bad. Okay. Now we went home. Now then you, what, on Monday you called the Human Rights Committee? Yeah, this was Saturday night. Monday we called a man called Carl Glass, who subsequently was murdered in his, um, uh, a few years later he was um, running a state Human Rights Commission office in Ohio. And some guy came in and blew him away. But this guy, I called on Monday, he came up to Piedmont in a few days, interviewed people, and within a couple weeks, the Blue Jay was history. Because the owner said, I would rather shut down than let niggers in. And so it was shut down. Now what happens, that this is still before Election Day. That's right. This is at the height of the campaign. <laughs> <laughs> so now, the woman we're calling Maura's daddy is still trying to become the mayor. That's right. Uh, and now I assume everybody knows about the swordfish as well, everybody, or the blue jay, or whatever it's called. Absolutely. So, what, so I assume he loses. No, he, he won. How? And, well, he won, I guess, because I was told by, uh, I was pre-med at the time, this is a part of the story, and I'd been um, nurtured by this doctor, my mother's doctor, actually, his name was Dr. Staggers. Nurtured meaning, you know, they used to let me come down to the hospital and watch operations, and they would, you know, they offered, when I went away to, to Yale, they gave me a little extra scholarship, things like that. And uh, he called me and said he wanted to see me, and he said that some of the liberal members in the Potomac Valley, or of Kaiser, it's in, on the Potomac River. This is two hours west of D.C., just so you know where this is, in the Allegheny Mountains, halfway between Pittsburgh and Washington, that's where it is. And uh, he said that the, the handful of liberals in this county had decided that they wanted to vote for this man to show that they weren't prejudiced. And he was underqualified. I mean, he had a, barely had a high school education. He ran against the president of the local college, Potomac, the ex-president of the local college. Who was white? Who was white as the driven snow. So everybody's white except for you. Everybody's white. And you're not even related. Me and the fierce of Borsum, that's right. And I remember staying up late that night um, waiting for the election results. Wait a second. Does this mean that you have made him a liberal? That is no, Daddy Moira? He never became a liberal. I was never allowed to, to go to the house. I picked her up for the prom, and I had to wait at the end of the driveway, and she came out in this big dress. And, and all. So in what sense was a, why would the liberals go out for, uh, for Daddy, what's his name? 
Well, because it was, people wanted to do the right thing and they knew that this was idiotic and they figured that if they voted the way they really wanted to vote, it would be misconstrued. They wanted to vote for the superior candidate, who the smarter candidate clearly was Dr. Church. <laughs> but if they voted for him, they would look like they were embracing all the rednecks from the hollows that were coming down to vote against um, Rebel. I mean, this guy's name was, his nickname was Rebel. I mean, Mora's father was <laughs> Rebel uh, Gibson. Can you believe this? I mean, it's, it's, un, it's unbelievable. So you elected him? I guess so, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, shortly thereafter, I left to go to New Haven, Connecticut, <laughs> never to return. Um, the, the very last part of this is interesting to me. You, you, um, you decide, when, when he wins, you do a kind of a, it's an automotive test. You um, take your car and ride it to traffic lines in the road and park for a while in front of fire hydrants. Why? Um, well, all of a sudden I had uh, juice, as we say, in this town. I mean, my father-in-law, potentially, was the mayor, right? And uh, I knew that they wouldn't do anything. So I had been harassed by the police, and then I found out after he was um, elected that there was a list of troublemakers. They were called potential troublemakers that the state police kept. You know, when, when Bill Clinton became president, they tell him all the secrets, right? Right. They show him all the alien bodies that are kept in Fort Knox, all those stories that you've heard, right? <laughs> well, in, Piedmont, in Kaiser, West Virginia, they showed him the list of potential troublemakers, and I was the head of the list at 18 years old, which was really quite frightening when you're 18 years old. Huh. Now, since you have glorious... It was also, yeah. also kind of cool, I have to confess. Yeah, well, to be a public enemy like this. Yeah, you know, there was Eldridge Cleaver and Stokely and Rapp, and then there was me and the fearsome force of integrating the swordfish restaurant. <laughs> it's wonderful to call yourself fearsome and then be discovered to be fearsome to at least somebody. Yeah, but we weren't that fearsome. Yeah. Uh, but now, here's the interesting part. Uh, after this insistent act of integration, I guess, um, in the book, I'm talking about colored people now, um, you also have another group of people who are meeting, including your dad and your uncle, at the local paper mill once a year at the company picnic. Mm -hmm. So since the Blue Jay nightclub is to be integrated or it must die, by that same logic, so must the picnic. There was a black picnic and there was a white picnic. That's right. What was the reaction among your relatives when the black picnic had to go? Oh, people couldn't believe it. See, what the mill did, I mean, the irony of our victory, and it was hailed as a great victory, was that the paper mill then decided that to avoid another suit, a potential suit from young troublemakers like us, they would have to stop the tradition of segregated mill picnics, which happened on Labor Day. It was a white picnic, which was dull and boring. And then there was a color picnic, which <laughs> is where it was at. Well, that's your view, of course. That's right. And uh, the view of about 5,000 black people would come from all over America to come back to the picnic. It was great. People would, people would save all year just to come back to the mill picnic. They would rent cars. So they would look like they were doing good, as we put it up there in New York or Cincinnati or Detroit or wherever they were living. It was a homecoming. It was a communal family reunion, broadly defined. And all of a sudden, it was canceled. And no one could believe it. I remember my Aunt Marguerite said, this is not what Dr. King and them, she would say, Dr. King and them died for, what they fought for. You know, this was voluntary association, not legal segregation. And I think that on college campuses, that we have to be aware of that distinction. And it's something that, as a representative of a university, I, um, I try to remember. I try to protect the difference. I mean, students have a right to associate willingly. Jewish kids have a right to join Hillel. Catholic kids have a right to join Catholic organizations. Black kids have a right to join black organizations. I mean, 
That's, I mean, this is America, after all. But uh, there is actually some Aunt Marguerite, Marguerite or whatever it is. Her, she, but let me just quote you yourself. You said about some of your relatives, they hated some of us, this first generation of integrated wannabes, because they recognized us as the real threat to the ordered universe they had constructed with such care and such patience for so long. That's right. It was a time of great fluidity. Um, we were the crossover generation. We were, um, well, I was just talking to Thelma Golden backstage, right? right? Thelma Golden, you know, everyone knows the great curator at the Whitney who curated the black male exhibit. And whenever I have a conversation with someone like that about doing a project, I think we're the first generation of people of color who could have a conversation about a collaboration between, let's say, the Whitney Museum and Harvard University uh, ever. I mean, the first time in our history. That was not possible 30 years ago, but it is possible now because of affirmative action. Because of affirmative action, those of us who were lucky enough or positioned um, in the correct way were able to enter historically white institutions, whether it was the 92nd Street Y or CBS or now ABC or Yale University or the Whitney Museum and cross over. Uh, not enough of us have, have crossed over. We haven't crossed over uh, sufficiently, but you know, there are more of us now in those kinds of positions than ever before. But that nobody's was, saying thank you, right? Because, I mean, the kids at the, at the Blue Jay certainly probably hated you, uh -huh. but then the adults at the picnic didn't care for you much either. Right. So for these acts, the general reaction is piss off, pretty much. Yeah, it was, uh, why are you causing all this trouble? Yeah. And particularly among my uncles. These are my, my uncles on my mother's side of the family, the Coleman family. You're a troublemaker, and you're, 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 the trouble you're creating will um, be visited on our heads. So why don't you just stop? Why don't you just stop? And that was, I think, as painful, if not more so, than the white race. You expected white racism, but you, you knew this community. You had grown up there. You expected a little bit more enthusiasm, a little bit more passion for the civil rights movement coming to the valley. Right. And it was a complicated thing. But you know, you can't blame people. These people, you know, I was gonna go away to college. I was gonna be a doctor. And I, I was just passing through. I mean, these people live there, right. and they were, their lives are in the hands of these handful of white people. By the way, is there a black picnic again? Is there now a voluntary association? Yeah, there's an, is, I'm sorry. Do, is there a black picnic at the mill anymore? Not at the mill, but the community, after about a 10-year hiatus, came together and called it the homecoming. And it's had, held the same weekend. Oh, so it's the, mills, the mill picnic was integrated, and it was such a disaster that it was so boring, nobody wanted to go. <laughs> so they stopped the tradition, and now the black people come together once a year. So every um, Labor Day weekend, they have this great black picnic. Now, let me, uh, to prepare for this, and just out of general enthusiasm for the things you write in The New Yorker, I just like read through the whole oeuvre. Mm -hmm. And um, first of all, it's long. I mean, you write a lot. But anyway. Not a uh, like my, I was saying like my son who says, you know, I say, 45 minutes, you must read for 45 minutes. And then every seven, Dad, time? <laughs> but um, here's what I was noticing, is if I were to take what you've written in the last two or three years and sort of put it in a pile and try to describe it to myself, hmm. here's what I come up with. I think I see, you observe that everybody who is born is born into a family, and behind the family there's a, a clan or some kind of tribe. And sometimes that's wonderfully cozy. It's yours, and you can relax in it. And sometimes it's stifling, because it's so close, and you want to get out of it. But it's everybody's starting point. And you have a choice, whoever you are, Korean, black, Jewish, whatever. 
you can either stay in the cocoon or insist on staying, mm -hmm. hug it close, or say everybody else get away. You can step out. You can try to escape it. But whatever you do, stay, go, <coughs> push it away, you pay a price. And this business of being given an identity and then choosing in your life whether to amend it or not seems to be your topic. And never more so than this week, which, I mean, for everybody who hasn't yet read The New Yorker this week, this is a <coughs> knockout piece. I, um, it, this is about a guy who wants to get out, who, who, for good reasons, I think. But can you tell me about, we all know, uh, we all, maybe many of you have heard of Anatole Boyardi, he was in the New York Times for years and years and years as the book reviewer, one of the daily book <coughs> reviewers. Um, what I didn't know is that he was a black man. And no one else, his kids didn't know. His kids didn't know. Um, can you tell me, first of all, who, who, where did he begin, Anatole? He, in New Orleans, right? Sorry, I'm dying here. That's okay. I'll talk while you He was born in New Orleans. To a <laughs> Sorry about that. It's my allergies. I don't know if anybody else out there, but it's been the worst allergy season for me. It's allergic to the Y. It's an unusual No, I thing. like the Y. Uh, Anatole Breuer began in the, the mulatto, you know, the quadroon class, the octoroon class in New Orleans in 1920. But he lived, his family was Negro. I mean, they were Negro. His birth certificate, which, you know, we researched his whole family back to 1788, his birth certificate said he was colored, and he was, his family was colored or Negro in New Orleans. His, um, in the 30s, his family moved to Brooklyn. But his mother and father were very light-complected. He had an older sister and a younger sister, and the younger sister looked Negroid, quote-unquote. The older sister was light enough to pass. His father and mother were black in Brooklyn. You know, they were colored at home. They lived in the neighborhood. Everyone knew this. It was an integrated neighborhood, but everyone knew them as colored. But the father um, passed to join the Carpenters Union right. because the craft unions were segregated. And, um, but he passed at work, and he was colored at home. And so Anatole got married. He married um, a black Puerto Rican woman. They had a child. He went to, he went to Brooklyn College in 1938. Then he got married. And according to his sister, he got married to have a child to stay out of the army, but he got drafted anyway. So he went into the army, and when he came out of the army, he had sent money home while he was in the army to open a bookstore. And uh, when he got out of the army, he opened um, a bookstore in the village, and he divorced his wife and um, divorced the race. So he went, he would, he would wake up a black man in Brooklyn, get in the subway, come up on Washington Square. And he was white. And then he moved to the village, and, and he passed completely. And a few friends knew, but he would spin these stories. He would tell half-truths. He would say, I have, uh, I'm of I'm mixed ancestry. Or, um, you know, there's one in the woodpile, right? I have a vague black ancestor somewhere. And one of the most interesting things about the research was that all of his ancestors were black. All. They were just light complexed, and light complexed people tended to marry light complexed people. And he, of course, married the lightest complexion person of all. He married a woman of Norwegian descent who had blonde hair and blue eyes, and they had um, two children. And both of the children were raised white. They had no more idea than the man in the moon that, they were, that their father was black. They never met their Aunt Shirley, who was visibly black, uh, until their father's funeral. Now, to give him his due, he had reasons. And one of the reasons was that he felt, particularly when he was up around getting to the New York Times period, he felt that he wanted to be, as you write, he felt he had to make a choice between being an esthete and being a Negro. I'm saying, I'm not endorsing that choice. I'm yeah. saying, I'm trying to get into his head. Right. 
and that was the way he posed the choice. I can't be a now, Negro. Wait, 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 I, I can understand that. I can't write about culture and books and all. If they know I'm black, then it will be the black man talking about it. But if they don't know, then they'll just take it for what it's worth. They won't add the adjective. Worse, they will want me to write about nothing but black people uh. in his mind. And he didn't want to write about that. He just wanted to write about people. Well, was he right? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. He was wrong. He was wrong in 19... Uh, <laughs> getting a cup of coffee. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. If you serve it to him, you can get... Hmm? Okay, thank okay. you. Uh, no, he was wrong. I mean, I remember... You ever, did you ever uh, see a movie called Imitation of Life? Imitation of Life. This is with the Delilah and the... the, and the yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like Aunt Jemima invents pancakes, right? Right. Well, this is my favorite movie of all time. And... Um, I wrote about this in the book, too. You would, we would watch that. You know, the black people weren't on TV much in those days. This is the, the 50s. And so you would know if a black movie was coming. Everybody would talk about it. They'd say, Imitation Life's on the night of midnight. They would only put the black stuff on the late, late show, right? And we would all stay up to watch it. And the plot of Imitation of Life turns on this young, light-complected girl who flees the race. She decides to pass for white. Her mother is the, the, the woman who invents Antibiotic pancake mix, I mean, in the story. And they become very, very wealthy. But all she wants, she's living with this white woman. Right. And she, invent, she makes these pancakes for everybody. And this traveling salesman comes through. He's an actor, Ned Sparks. He right. bites the pancakes. He looks at the camera and says, we'll box it. And the next scene, they're living in this big mansion. And there are all these pancake boxes with this big black woman on the, on the box. And they say, well, Delilah, you're now a wealthy woman. What do you want to do? And she said, uh, she didn't want any of the money. She just wants to give it to the good white woman who who takes care of, has taken such good care of her, and Ned Sparks looks at the camera and says, once a pancake, always a pancake. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is one of the great lines in American cinema. And, and, and this, the daughter of this woman is named Piola? Piola. Piola. And Piola is, uh, Tony Morrison made um, the figure Piola a classic figure because he uses that name in, in The Bluest Eye. Right. And it's referring back to imitation of life. Well, Piola marries a white man, denies her own mother, Wait, and isn't there this famous scene? The school, tell the school scene. That's right. She goes to school. Delilah goes to school to pick up her little girl. And the teacher says, I'm sorry, lady. There are no colored children here. You must be mistaken. And she says, yeah, this is my little Piola. And Piola at this point has dug down in her chair behind a book. And she says, Piola, come to your mammy. Uh, Piola, honey child, come to your mammy. And Piola is so embarrassed, she runs out of the school. And uh, the last scene of the movie, um, Delilah dies, and she had taken her profit, the little bit of profit that she had kept, for her funeral. And for her funeral, she wanted a New Orleans-style funeral with a big carriage with white horses taking her to the graveyard and a jazz band behind her. You know, it's a fantastic funeral. I wouldn't mind one of those funerals myself. And um, So noted. <laughs> so she's getting, she's, they're lowering the casket into the, the grave, and here comes Piola out of nowhere, uh, too late to say goodbye to her mother. And she throws herself on the casket and says, Mama, I'm sorry, Mama, I'm sorry, Mama. And by this time in our living room, I'd be crying, my mother would be crying, my brother would be crying, my father would be crying. And I'd go to my mama and say, Mama, I'll never pass for white, I'll never pass for white. <laughs> I'll be so there. you have a prejudice this way. I no. have a prejudice. I tried to, I tried to disguise the prejudice uh, in, the, in the piece. I mean, I tried to be fair. I tried to get into this guy's head. I mean, after all, it's 1946. Um, there are a lot of um, wait, wait, didn't lynchings. You write, wait, 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 now that I'm looking at my notes, didn't you write, his perception was perfectly correct. 
he would have had to be a Negro writer, which is something he did not want to be. Yes, that's right. But it's ironic because, to me, you can't be more than a Negro writer, just like Proust can't be more than a French writer or Pushkin more than a Russian writer. Pushkin is not an idle example there because he was a mixed ancestry, of course. But all you can be, the only way you can um, reach the universal in art is to penetrate the particular. You know, you have to write about what you know, and you have to write about, Toni Morrison writes about Lorraine, Ohio, and the colored world there when she was growing up. But she, you go to China, people read Toni Morrison. I mean, if someone writes about um, the shtetl experience, right, in Russia, it's not about, it's not an anthropological treatise. It is art. You use the particular in order to speak to people who don't look like you. And so Anatole Broyard would have had to write about what he knew. And what he knew so well was the, the, the marginal Negro world of New Orleans and Brooklyn. And had he written about that, I think he would have been remembered as one of the true, or his own dilemma as a person not visibly black, who was, you know, was playing out this Faustian bargain, as I say. That would have been fascinating. That's the stuff of art. Instead, he tried to write about a world that he had to imagine. It's like me writing about being Chinese. That's an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. So he pays a horrible price. What and happens is, he, he, in 1954, he writes a piece about him and his father. A brilliant piece. Which is true, apparently. That's I mean, it has truth. Mm -hmm. And now he sets about writing the autobiographical novel about himself, and he can't. He can't do it. He never could write the novel. He became a, a you know, very good reviewer. Some people felt a brilliant critic, but he could never do the thing he, most so, he so ardently wanted to do, which was to become a great novelist. And um, a lot of his friends said, I, I quote Harold Brodke, I quote- His wife. Um, Ellen, Ellen Schwamm uh, talking about, uh, Anatole was, had written a draft of a memoir, I think it was 1981, and he gave it to Brodke, the Brodkeys to read. And Harold apparently said, look, there's something wrong here. There's a lie here. There's something you're not saying. And you can't fool people when you write a memoir. And you know, what is it? And he sat down and he said, I'm living a lie. I'm a Negro, and my mother's a Negro, my father's a Negro, they're light enough to pass, but we were, I was raised a Negro and I've been passing all these years. And he could never ever confess it in public sufficiently to remove this block which kept him from writing fiction. I think it's one of the sad, I think that his story is one of the tragedies of American racism. Because the true irony is that the laws of racial classification make absolutely no sense. We have inherited them from slavery. If you had one drop, it's called the law of hypodescent. If you have one drop of black blood, you're black. Well, you know, well, black blood is, I love black culture. I teach it. I make my living thinking about it. But black culture, is so, black blood is so powerful. You have one <laughs> black ancestry, ancestor 500 years ago, and that makes you black. You know, the, the joke is, if we found, I'm editing along with 10 other editors, the Norton Anthology of African American Literature. It'll be published in November. It'll be 2,500 pages. It'll have a CD with all the, the oral literature on it, all the vernacular literature, all the playing the dozens and Bessie Smith singing the blues and things like that. If we found out that Shakespeare had one black ancestor, we, I would call Norton right now and tell him, stop the press. We're gonna start off with that brother, William Shakespeare. <laughs> you know, that's ridiculous. Was that what you meant? Because there, there was a line in that piece that I, I wondered about. It says, to pass is a sin against authenticity. Authenticity 
is among the founding lies of the modern age. What does yeah, that that's mean? right. Well, it means, let's take, let's break it down to give um, people an example. In the late 60s, we used to um, have a ritual called uh, being blacker than thou. That means that somebody would issue a press release basically and tell you this is what a black person is. And to be authentically black, your afro had to be so long, uh, your dashiki had to be you know, down over your knees, you had to use certain kind of language. You couldn't, for example, uh, like incorrect forms of music or, or entertainment. And so I always, I give an address to the entering black freshman at Harvard. And I say, and, and finally I'd like to say that you can like, your favorite artist can be Picasso, your favorite musician could be Mozart, you can even like ice hockey and still be black as the ace of spades. <laughs> Everybody claps because they're all relieved, right? I mean, no one wants to be defined as being inauthentic against some code um, summoned up by some committee to tell you what it means to be a Jew, what it means to be gay, what it means to be black. I'm not interested in that. You know, I didn't want, let white people do that. And I'm not interested in a bunch of black people doing it. That's what that sentence means. That um, the whole notion of who's authentically, um, ideologically correct, who's authentically a Jew, who's authentically black, is a bogus notion. And I think that there, there are 35 million black people, there are 35 million ways to be black. I wanted to just use your family just to, to fill in, because it's kind of interesting. The oldest known Gates, is a Jane Gates, born right. 1816 in Africa. Mm -hmm. Well, we think. we think. I mean, she looks like it. She was a slave, we presume, and probably owned by an Irish property owner whom you identify as Mr. Brady. That's right. Who lives in Cumberland, Maryland. Yeah, he lived in um, um, one of the suburbs, <laughs> as it were, <laughs> in Cressive Town, I think. Now, Mr. Brady, while Jane Gates works for Mr. Brady, he, she has six of his children. That's right. One of them is named Edward. That would make Mr. Brady, because Edward creates Pop, Pop creates Henry, Henry creates you. Right. So that means that you have an Irish property owner named Mr. Brady as your great, great, great grandpa. That's right. You also have, in your dad goes to Newark, since we're at the Y, tell me the Rosh Hashanah story. <laughs> well, he went to um, Newark. Uh, we have to start at the turn of the century. Edward Gates married Maud Fortune, and they had a farm, a 200-acre farm in Patterson's Creek, West Virginia. And Maud Fortune was a socialist. She subscribed to the Crisis Magazine. She was a very articulate, educated woman. And, um, she, and she loved Germans. And she loved Germans. She was very much into the German culture. My father, born in 1913, his name's Henry, and his nickname is Heine, and he was nicknamed at birth. And um, but she decided that she was going to send her three daughters to Washington and Baltimore to be educated at the turn of the century and keep the son, my grandfather, at home. Join in the farm. Yeah, rather than the other way around. That's quite remarkable. And the one, girls go to school and the guy stays at home. That's right. One went to Bowie State College, one went to Howard, and one went someplace else. One became a nurse, and I think two became school teachers. It was quite remarkable. And so she was a prototypical feminist. Um, and all their kids go to Harvard and... Uh, yeah, and their kids, my cousins, many of them, not all of them, but my cousin Helen Lees, uh, she probably has read here, she's a great novelist, she teaches at MIT. She, her mother went to Harvard, um, got a PhD in Complit in 1955. Her father graduated from Harvard Law School in 48, and got a master's degree in government. You know, it's, they're all, these mm -hmm. are Gateses. So that was quite exciting. That was very important for me to sort of bond with him. Now, um, my father goes to live with um, Aunt Pansy, one of the people. She went to Howard. She became a nurse. 
and her, she married a dentist. They live in Westfield, New Jersey, and he goes to this Jewish school. He wasn't passing. It was, schools were integrated there. There were so few black people. So he goes to school in Rosh Hashanah, and the teacher says, Heine, why are you here? And he says, because it's school. And she says, well, this is a Jewish holiday. And he says, I'm not a Jew. What are you? And he <laughs> says, I'm colored. You know, <laughs> this is what we couldn't believe. Oh, my. Because he's very fair. He's um, a mulatto. And you had, in your own family, you have relatives who just went off with the Jewish person and became Jewish. That's right. One of my great uncles um, was a chauffeur. He left the race, became a Jew, and married a Jewish woman. And one of his kids could be sitting right here. They could. Or upstairs at the nursery school. It could be your mama or your daddy. <laughs> uh, all right, so... so uh, <laughs> my mother at the moment is in Las Vegas. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> then I know that there is a connection. Because my, my father, I have to tell you this, my father's having surgery tomorrow, carpal tunnel. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I said, Daddy, how could you... What did you do? You know, he doesn't type, he didn't do all that. And he looked kind of sheepish and he said, well, they said it could be caused by playing cards. <laughs> <laughs> the old Mahjong talking up. He plays bridge and bid whiz four times a week. Oh, really? So my mother plays bridge. You know, there are possibilities. Yeah, all right. Um, and you look like you got a little touch of the tar brush yeah, right well, around. <laughs> I've been walking up and down the streets looking at people, seeing who else could be passing, right? Uh, let's talk about the people who just refuse to do that, the ones who who insist on blackness and to the point where they, this is the ones who, who, who separate, who want to be separate. Mm -hmm. I'm particularly interested in your Farrakhan, your meeting Minister Farrakhan. Oh, for those great. of you who read uh, that particular profile, Skip is off to uh, visit Mr. Minister Farrakhan. He goes to Chicago, goes up the street, figures there's going to be some tank or something or a lot of guys in uniforms at the gate. He goes in, gets inside the house, and uh, he's so nervous that he calls uh, Minister Farrakhan's wife, Mrs. Muhammad, I'm simply not quite knowing. <laughs> it's true. And, then he, and when Farrakhan comes in, Farrakhan is dressed like to the nines with everything matching. He's and clean. He's, yeah, and you look at yourself and you like the wrong pants and you have a... I had mismatched pants. I had a suit on. And now, I was so why, nervous. Why are you nervous? <laughs> why are you nervous? What are you talking about? Where have you been, man? This is Farrakhan. <laughs> How, let me ask a leading question as we do on TV. Did you have any particular reason that oh. the rest of us might not have had? That's how this lawyer interviewed you today. You <laughs> yeah. have to tell them about that. I was uh, being deposed today by a billionaire, <laughs> a hostile billionaire. But anyway. <laughs> I, because I had published an essay in the New York Times in 1992 about anti-Semitism within the black community, but more particularly within the black intellectual community, and what I perceived to be a new kind of anti-Semitism, and, um, and something that I thought was disgusting, and I thought that... Um, it was just a common sense thing to do to stand up and say that it was disgusting. I, it was particularly um, motivated by my response to a book that the Nation of Islam had published called The Secret Relationship Between Blacks and Jews, which basically is a 500-page diatribe saying the Jews ran the slave trade. It was part of this you know, Jewish plot to run the world, that 13 rabbis ruled the world, and they hated black people, and so they invented this cruel system called slavery. It's just bullshit. You know, it's just total bullshit is what it was. And um, I wrote a long article, which got, got a lot of attention. And after that, a couple of members of the Nation of Islam um, said publicly they, they hoped I had an untimely death. And we started getting death threats at the office. And I, you know, I, I became frightened. I should say uh, that when I read that uh, article, which, by the way, I, I want to ask you one thing about this rearranged sentence that, he, that, that you pointed out. 
But I thought that that article was not only one of the most bravest, and uh, you, you write, as did Reinhold Niebuhr before you, of a kind of muscular sort of humanism, as you put it, or he would call it probably a, an aggressive form of liberalism, but whatever you call it, um, looking at something that is scary and that you think is wrong and calling it what you called it in such a public space, at such risk, with such eloquence, um, was, I thought, an extraordinary act. But anyway. Well, I, di I didn't, I mean, thank you very much, but I didn't really do it for that. First of all, I didn't know that well, also it said, you know what, what it, let me just explain, but let me ask okay. you about what it said. All right. The, you said, uh, you quote Farrakhan saying that the purpose of this book, The Secret Relationship, this is Farrakhan speaking, was to rearrange a relationship that has been detrimental to us. That's right. What did that mean? Well, he meant that basically, um, I mean, pick your metaphor, uh, the Jewish owners, black labor, uh, you know, the old uh, management talent split, that essentially... Uh, the black community had been um, a recipient of the largesse of the philanthropic branch of the Jewish community, but not real power sharing. And in fact, he also told me that he thought he would be the first black leader ever to have a seat at the table with members of the Jewish community as a full equal. He used the analogy, he said, look, he called me Dr. Gates all throughout. I, I interviewed him for seven hours nonstop at really? his dining table. Seven yeah, hours. seven hours. And, um, and he was funny, witty, very intelligent sort of person. But when, as soon as you mention the J word, it's like a little tight spring that goes doing, goes flying across the room. <laughs> I mean, he's, uh, he's, you know, he definitely uh, believes all the things that he says about the um, Jewish conspiracy without absolutely no doubt about that. But, uh, but it seemed to me that, that, the, that because the Jews pay a little more attention and listen and sometimes help, sometimes hinder, sometimes say too much, sometimes little, but because they seem to be involved, mm -hmm. you argued that this, um, this relationship, this friendship, or whatever it is, was in the way of those who would prefer, as a political act, who wanted to say, we are here, separate from all those white people, these Jews just kept coming over and trying to sit down with us, and, and that was a problem. For him. For him. Oh, absolutely. And for a lot of people in, in, the, in the black movement in the 1960s, remember it fell apart. The great coalition of the civil rights movement fell apart um, after Stokely Carmichael and Rap Brown started enunciating um, the tenets of black power. Who would be the leaders? What was the relationship between philanthropy and leadership? It got enormously complicated. And it, that probably was inevitable. But I, well, I guess I, I, until I read that article, I hadn't ever thought of this, but you described that this, the more modern forms of anti-Semitism as practiced particularly on the campuses, was you said it was um, actually a tool in a battle of who speaks for black America. That's right. What, what does that mean? Well, if um, Farrakhan, I also came back to this point in my New Yorker piece. I said one of the things that I realized about Farrakhan was that not only did he terrify white people, he terrified black people as well. So the question is, who had enough juice to run the black community? You know, who had um, the power center? And anti-Semitism was a way of rallying, just like it's always been, like it was in Nazi Germany, like it's been in, it was in England, like it was in France, like it, was in, like it continues to be in Russia and a lot of other places, a way to make people forget that they have differences that are class-based, that they're poor, that they're being exploited by someone else, and unite around a demagogue who then makes you hate the putative enemy. 
And that's the danger of anti-Semitism. It's the danger of anti-black racism. It's the danger of homophobia. Which brings me back to your point about why I wrote, wrote that piece. I didn't write it for the Jewish community. I, I, th I happen to think anti-Semitism is wrong, just like I think homophobia is wrong, just like I think racism is wrong. And it's important as a black person, now consider the statistics in the black community. One out of three black men between the ages of 20 and 29 are in the care of the prison system. 45% of all black children live at or, or beneath the poverty level. You know, the Jews are not our problem. You know, how to adapt American capitalism, make it more humane, how to redistribute wealth, how to get our people educated, how to get them to be viable members of the workforce. That's what we have to be concentrating on. So all of this side attention, worrying about Jews running the slave trade, is a distraction. We are being manipulated, our people are being manipulated, and that prevents us from uniting and solving the problems that afflict the black community. After seven hours of intimate conversation with Minister Farrakhan, did you come away more frightened, as frightened, less frightened, or pals? Absolutely less frightened. Um, I'm, I didn't come less shocked at his anti-Semitism or homophobia. I mean, the, the Muslim religion is based on um, an absolute non-acceptance of gay people. But um, I found, it's, it's like uh, Hannah Arendt's phrase about the banality of evil, talking about um, anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany. I found that here's a person who could be so funny and so interesting and so witty and so intelligent, and he, he is, I mean, this, as, as I said in my piece, but as soon as you talk about Jews, it, he just goes off. I mean, he didn't rant and rave, he didn't froth at the mouth, nothing like that, but he said, I, I'll give you an example. I said, Minister Farrakhan, you said in the Washington Post uh, interview with the Board of Editors in 1990 that you believed that there was a cabal of Jews that ran the world. Do you still believe that? And he looked at me and he said, oh, absolutely. <laughs> it was like, we've been talking four hours, you're gonna ask me a question like that? Of course I do. He said they meet once a month on Park Avenue. Really? Yeah, without any hint of irony or anything. Then he said, sometimes they meet in Hollywood as well. <laughs> I want to crack up. And he, um, he said that um, there are good Jews and bad Jews in the cabal, but they, there is a cabal, and that they have enormous undue influence, and he's wrestling with them to wrestle some of that power, and he wants to be friends. Mike Wallace had just interviewed him a few days before I did. He said, I, you can call Mike Wallace and ask him, and I did, I saw Mike Wallace at dinner uh, two days later in Boston, and I said, Farrakhan said that you would ask him to be a liaison, to set up um, um, some sort of detente with the leaders of the Jewish community. He said, that's absolutely true. Um, and he had asked Barbara Walters the year before to do the same thing with the American Jewish Congress and, and people like that. Um, but he is of a, the firm belief that Jews run the world. And so what I realized was that Farrakhan wants black people to be like Jews, like his idea of what Jews are. He wants them to be successful, highly educated, um, determined he to He even claims together. one for his great-grandpa. And then he dropped it on me. I mean, I've been sitting there for six hours looking at his hair, and he had what in the old days we would call good hair. Right during uh, the Black Power era, we we had to learn to call good hair bad hair, bad hair good good hair. Sometimes we got mixed up, <laughs> and unfortunately, in the Michael Jackson era, we we are very mixed up about that right now. <laughs> and so um, I was looking at his hair. He has this silky, wavy hair, and I, I mean, we were from me to that water pitcher, you know. And I'm looking at his hair, looking at his hair, and I was thinking somebody is white in his family. So I said, uh, Minister Farrakhan, do you know anything about the um, white? 
ancestor. I said, you're obviously a mulatto. Do you know, and I was telling Cornell West, Cornell West is my buddy, right? I, I said, and I said, you're a mulatto. He said, you did, you did, you weren't scared. I said, no, man, because <laughs> he is a mulatto. I mean, you look at him, you know that. And uh, he said, he looked at me and he said, I'm gonna tell you something. He said, I never told anybody. He said, I am convinced that my grandfather was a Jew. And um, so, and it turns out his grandfather was white. There's no question about that. And he was a merchant and he was from um, the Iberian Peninsula. So I called Orlando Patterson, who has written a book about the white merchants in Barbados at the turn of the century. And I said, what are the, the statistical um, probabilities that Farrakhan's grandfather, that an Iberian who was a merchant in Barbados at the turn of the century was a member of the Jewish religion? And he said, 99 and 44, 100%. <laughs> and I think Farrakhan knew that in advance. I mean, he wasn't just, you see, he did it through this sort of biological affinity to Jewish culture. But I'm sure his, someone had told him that his grandfather was probably a Jewish person. That's all I know. Don't shoot me. That's just that's what <laughs> right, the man well, I, I'm a little worried that I'm going to run. I was going to ask you about OJ and other things, but I'm not going to. Let me just get to Colin Powell. Well, <laughs> let me do Colin Powell, and then I can work. And then it's up to you guys. I mean, you, it's 9 o'clock, so I don't know, like, uh, more? OK. Um, <clears throat> well, then let's do it. God, time flies. I didn't know it was enough. Um, so, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. On the OJ trial, I was, uh, where were you when the verdict was announced? Okay, I was, I was in my class. But what's the problem? What's, what? What? What are they saying? They said, don't ask me about OJ. This is great. Oh, don't, there's, there's a rump group. All right, so we'll go past OJ, and then we can have a vote later. Let me just go, I'll go. Colin Powell, uh, just because he's in the news again. Okay. Um, do you think he will run for vice president? You don't. I have to talk in this microphone. Um, no. Why? Well, well, first, let me say this. I don't think, I think it's going to be hard for him. I don't think that he can imagine what it's like to have the whole Republican convention on his feet, stamping cola and cola and cola, <laughs> you know, this whole thing. Um, but I think he'll resist if he has any sense. Because I think he'll be president in the year 2000. I think Bill Clinton will be president of the United States for a second term. And then I think it's Powell's era. And I think that the poetry of a black man heading America as we turn the century, irresistible. You know, if you were, script, you were scripting this, it's ideal. So that's Farrakhan's game to do all these numbers. I don't know that Colin Powell's like, <laughs> well, uh, um, You think, wait, we, we got, let me just run through some of the worries that were in your article, which was pretty neat also. Uh, Alma, the wife, says, well, as soon as he steps out, you can bet that someone somewhere will decide that it's patriotic duty to shoot him. That's right. So that doesn't go away. That's not going to He's going to stay married to this woman. Right. So how does that, how does 2000 whatever, he's still, there'll be still that patriotic person out there. He's, she has um, four years to prepare for it, which she didn't have before. She only had months. Um, I think that the, I, people get used to the idea, it becomes naturalized, as we say. And it become, becomes naturalized in Alma's head, and it becomes naturalized in the, the heads of Americans. It's less of um, a Kennedy-type phenomenon, you know, like who can be the first person to kill this guy? I think he'll still be slandered more than normal. I think he'll be in more well, danger than normal. Let me ask, because this is Cornell West's notion. He says, mm -hmm. look, as soon as the attacks start, as soon as they go after him, then he'll be forced to get angry somehow. And the minute he gets angry then, says West, Oh my God, says the people, says, instead of this charming 
sexless military handsome man who's you know who's not going to steal your girl mm -hmm. as Julian Bond says then you get instead this he is a black man look at him he's full of rage he's been that all the time and then he gets typed and everybody <coughs> gets scared and then nobody votes for him although they might not tell that to the pollsters Now, what's wrong with Cornell West's theory? I don't think, I think that Col we know Colin Powell's a military man. I think that we've seen him get mad, and I think that we'll see him, uh, he's, he, he put, um, you know, what do you call it? The stake in the sand, right? The, is that right? I don't know. You know, he drew the line in the he sand. He drew a line Thank in you. the sand. He drew a line in the sand about affirmative action and about abortion. Yep. And <coughs> at great risk to himself politically with the Republican Party. And <coughs> those were things at the time when Cornell made that statement that Powell hadn't done. So I think that um, he'll come out as a black man, and he's very, very concerned about that. I mean, he called me the night before the Million Man March. He said, I said, well, General, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm not going to go, but I'm going to be on CBS Morning News. And he used the, uh, the Furman analogy on CBS Morning News. And he said, that it, he didn't think it was appropriate for him in his position to go to a march headed by a black Furman. I mean, I'm paraphrasing badly, but that's, that's what he said. But then he told me, look, there are going to be a million people there tomorrow. He said, I have been out on this book tour, and this idea has captured the brother's imagination. And when you know Powell, I mean, not that I know him, but I've spent some time with him, uh, he is a brother. I mean, he's a get-down kind of guy. He's funky, and he's funny, and he likes being black, and he loves black, black culture. He's not like Clarence Thomas. You know, he's not, he's not that kind of, now I've never met Clarence, but I, I can imagine what Clarence is like. This is a very bad thing that I'm doing, but um, it is, but I don't really see Clarence getting down. <laughs> I had a dinner party, my wife and I, my Sharon Adams, we had a dinner party for Cornell West and George Will. <laughs> I like to bring people together and this is, it was a dramatic way to do it at my dining table. We had 14 people there, a lot of Harvard professors, and, uh, and George Will sat next to Sharon at the opposite end of the table and across from Cornell. And we had very frank, you know, lively, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, George was so nervous, I mean, the brother's sweating like I was sweating, right? So finally I said, God damn, George, you can relax. You know, we're not, this is not an oral exam. We just wanted to, you know, meet some of our friends, and we had some conservative people there and some liberal people there, and it was, and we talked about a lot of things, particularly affirmative action. Um, I mean, he couldn't believe that Cornell and I would support affirmative action. You know, and it was one of those condescending things. You guys are so smart, you didn't need affirmative action to get into Yale and Harvard. And I said, that's bullshit. You know, George, I said, um, <laughs> I never would have gotten from Piedmont, West Virginia to Yale University without affirmative action. Now, his idea of affirmative action was um, what? You're, you know, that an unqualified person is admitted into something gained entry, given entry into something that they don't deserve or for which they're not qualified. You know, you're over the Atlantic Ocean, you hit the worst turbulence in history, and a voice comes on the loudspeaker and says, do, do somebody know how to run this thing? You know, <laughs> you know you're in, a, you're having a heart attack, you know, you rush to this hospital, you look up and somebody says, is this the scalpel? <laughs> you, know, you know, that's racist, man. What affirmative action meant for us was this. I graduated from Yale, class of 1973, with 96 black kids. The class of 68, the class that graduated the year before I went to Yale, 18 black kids. All that affirmative action did 
was let us begin to compete with white boys and white girls in larger numbers than ever before. What affirmative action did was lift a one racist quota to a higher level of another racist quota. Um, and that was important because um, I never would have gotten into an Ivy League school with my background. I mean, I was a smart little kid. I had good test scores, but they never would have found me in Piedmont, West Virginia. They had four or five black kids in these classes. They were the children of doctors or someone well-connected to some other rich white person or well-connected white person, and that's the way it was. Uh, and so I'll always, I mean, think about affirmative acts for me, and I'll come back to George Will in a minute. Because uh, my, well, we were heading off to Colin Powell. No, no, we're, we're coming back. Okay. We're coming back to Clarence Thomas because okay. I want to. I want to make this statement because somebody's going to ask me about this. And I, I want to get rid of it right okay. now. Okay. Um, when you think about it, if I went to Yale, I graduated with honors. I went to Cambridge. I got a PhD. I was the first. I got something called a Mellon found a Mellon Fellowship. I was the first black person to get the Mellon Fellowship to go to Cambridge. My daddy calls it the Watermelon Fellowship. <laughs> 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 and um, then I taught at Yale, and I taught at Cornell, and I taught at Duke, and now I teach at Harvard. And lots of wonderful things have happened to me. I've been a very lucky person. But some bureaucrat somewhere has justified each of those things in the name of affirmative action. So for me, who has benefited as much as anybody black in the history of the American Academy from affirmative action, for me ever to stand before an audience and say I didn't support affirmative action would be to be a hypocrite as big as Clarence Thomas. And I would never, ever do that. But I want to go back to George. George, <laughs> George Will. So we have this free, you know, and I said that to, to George at the table. So afterwards, Cornell and Eleni, his wife's Ethiopian, they're, they're our two, two of our best friends. They stayed after everybody left. And Cornell said to me, George Will probably never had more honest discourse from black people than he had tonight in his entire life. And so we sat there imagining what it was like because he said he sees Clarence Thomas all the time. You know, what it was like for them, actually. You know, we imagine Clarence saying things like, well, yes, boss, the Negro has a long way to go. You know. <laughs> my people, slaves, you know, all that kind of bullshit that black people, you go back to my uncles where we started. You know, this is the way they had to be around white people. They had to, there was a stereotype of the Negro, and they had to conform to that stereotype. If they didn't, then they were a troublemaker. And if they were a troublemaker, they would die. They would die in economic or social death, or in the worst cases, they would die a literal death. People my generation would flout those strictures. You know, we, would, we had kinky hair all over our heads. We would eat watermelon in public, you know, spitting the seeds out in the middle of the street, all kind of bizarre stuff. I mean, that was as weird as our parents not doing that, but we would do that kind of thing, and we were very dangerous to them. Now, what were you saying about Colin Powell? <laughs> no, I was thinking that, that another thing you did with Bill, Bill T. Jones was you know, he took the spitting watermelon thing to the limit in many ways. But, but getting back to Colin Powell, just, but, um, I love Bill T. Jones. Yeah. He's a great, yeah. great artist. But we can't go on like that. Okay. Well. All right. So uh, what I was going to say is one of the things in your profile of Powell uh, that I thought was quite interesting is that he seemed quite interested in the idea that as a Republican, yes, he might draw this core constituency of the Democratic Party over mm -hmm. an interesting tactical notion that he th that since Mufune and some of these other guys in Capitol Hill were telling him, you know, if you run for national office, I will support you, even though I'm a Democrat and whatever. Like Quasi and, and Fumi and yeah. people like that. So he's thinking, 
wow, I could rob the core of the Democratic Party and move it over, and something like that has not happened since FDR when he That's took right. it the other way. That's why Bill Clinton was having a heart attack about him running. And I think black is people... That still, is, I, I was thinking to myself, well, is... That's an interesting. One thing is to think, well, I would be the first, you know, like the Jews haven't got a president either. So whoever got close would think, in his ear, he'd think, first Jewish president, we're finally accepted. Wow, they might, you know, they tolerate us. Right. The Israeli in one country right. and whatever, but not here. So as you get close, there's something beckoning about that. It's another order of business to think the first guy to crush the Democrats, which is what that other thing That's is. That's right. Which of the two is more powerful in power? His eyes lit up when I gave him the, 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 the scenario that you painted was my question. I said, look, if this happened, if this happened, if this happened, you would go down in history as a figure as significant in the, the, the realignment of um, the American um, political um, scene as FDR, as FDR in 1936. And his eyes, I mean, teared. I mean, he knew teared? it. They teared, yeah. I mean, he knew that. And I mean, I had finally, I reached in and touched him. You know, because- Why, why, Because he's not, this guy didn't sound like he woke up every morning saying, gotta get the Democrats. I mean- No, no, no. But making- like Saddam Hussein. Making history. You know, immortality. Um, a Isn't significance- is history just to be the first one? Why, why, why and 1936 in the bargain? Yeah, but I mean, he would really be the man if he became the president, was the first African-American, and reconfigured the American political landscape. And I believe that he, that will happen. It can happen, I think it will happen. I think that he will run in, in the year 2000. See, I don't think that he can stomach being the number two man under Bob Dole. You know, even with Dole's move in the last what week. What about the advertisement goes, you're number two, but number one is almost dead. <laughs> I mean, that's essentially boiled down to the basics. That's what they're saying. You see, I think, now I'm not, I certainly could never claim even to begin to speak for Colin Powell, but I would imagine that he would be willing to jettison the hard right. See, if you jettison the hard right, you have to replace it with somebody in the Republican Party. That's us. That's not only black people, but liberals too. A lot of people like Colin Powell. Colin Powell's a centrist guy. I mean, he, on, he comes through well, on the right. At the moment, thing. you also make the point, and I guess. And he's more reliable than Bill Clinton. You know, would you like to have your, your, your fate dependent upon Bill Clinton standing behind you or in front of you, you can forget that. And well, I, except for this, except for in your analysis of Colin Powell, you, you take a long look at what I guess you call the Kitty Genovese situation. That for those of us who live in New York, remember, Kitty Genovese, 1960 or so, is out in Kew Gardens, I think, and someone is beating her up and she's crying for help and people hear her cries but don't answer. Now, in you, when you look at Powell, maybe you could say what you might about President Clinton. But Powell, you say, and you point out, is very pragmatic. And in your analysis, pragmatic doesn't smell so nice. He's always choosing the middle ground. If we're going to go to war, let's not until we must. If we're going to uh, think of trying to stop the problems in Yugoslavia, stop the killing, let's not because we don't have, if we're going to, um, you know, on and on, let's not, let's be careful, let's, well, let's you said extremism in pursuit of moderation right. is no virtue. So I got the sense that you were looking at this guy and thinking, well, he's a soldier, he's another, but 
for a guy who writes that kind of thing you wrote at the New York Times and has people calling you with death threats, I don't think that Colin Powell, had he been you, would have written the op-ed piece you wrote. Oh, I don't think so. I, I don't know. Uh, well, I, I don't. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. I mean, I think that when he, I think he, he calculates the risks when it comes to the lives of young boys, right? Boy, well, now boys and girls. And, I mean, I'm 45. I guess I can call 18-year-old boys and girls. But. And I, I think I was one of the surprises of interviewing him. You're was, getting sweet on this guy. At, no, since no. you published the thing. No, no. I, even then, I would have, I would have, I would have worked for him if he had run. Even then, I told him I would be his, I would write speeches. I would be honored to. I mean, I think a lot of the brothers would line up behind Colin Powell. But I want to answer your question because it's a very good question. Um, do I think he's a courageous person? Does he have a moral core? Um, he didn't have to come out for abortion. He didn't have to come out for affirmative action. In fact, it would, he didn't. I mean, not right now, right. but he did. And that's very important. Not, not like, this is, is this a major thing? Depending, if you're a woman and you're pro-choice, if you're a black person, you believe in affirmative action, or just an, an American and believe in affirmative action. He took a moral stand, and I thought that that was very important. He debated about going to the Million Man March. He wanted to go to the Million Man March. He knew it would be an historic occasion. And he didn't because he did not want to even appear to endorse the anti-Semitism of Farrakhan. That was a very hard decision because on that day, I think he was still running for president. I think it was only at the very last minute that he decided not to run for the president of the United States. So um, I'm not sure that he's not a, a moral, courageous person. But then compared to what? Compared to Bob Dole? Compared to Bill Clinton? You know, I was uh, so optimistic. I remember we went to... Um, I don't know where I was coming back from. China, I guess. My wife and I came coming back from China the night of the, uh, the day of the inauguration. And we had, somebody had given us tickets. And I, we couldn't go. We were just exhausted. It was, it was a long trip. So we watched it. And it was all that great feeling. Um, the inauguration, Maya Angelou and, and all these people. And it was this new day. And all the things, not all the things, but so many of the things that I thought he would take a moral stand on gays in the military. Um, Lonnie Guineer. Hmm? We're talking about the president. Talking about the president. He just abandoned ship. And now I don't. I mean, it's hard to imagine what Dole could say that Bill Clinton would not jump out in front of. Uh, his stance on gay marriage, I thought, was disgusting. Um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm just saying. But you I think knew the all Powell, that when you wrote the Powell piece. That you knew about Bill Clinton. Yeah, sure. And I say it too. And I've criticized Clinton in public for being too wishy-washy. But again, compared to what? Do I want Dole to be the president? Absolutely not. Well, on a partisan note, uh, <laughs> I think it's only fair, since it's now 915 and you were promised, first of all, for people who feel that they have to go to the bathroom or go home, you're free to do that because you, you, you were allowed out. For those of you who would like to stick around, I, you can uh, ask questions. I, I have other ones, but... I don't. I think I've hogged this. So now, how do we do this? Would you, you could I, turn the lights up? You could turn the lights up if there's anybody in the turning up lights department. There is. Oh, good. All right, lots of questions. Okay, so what we'll do is, uh, I guess, rise from where you're standing, and we'll try to hear, and I'll repeat the question. So why don't? Fifteen minutes. Fifteen minutes. Certainly. Fifteen minutes. Okay. Yeah. Go over there. Could you say it again? She wanted to know if Anatole Briard cheated not only himself, his family, but himself? Yeah. Absolutely. 
I mean, I think that he, um, the question was, did Anatole Broyard, in my opinion, cheat his family and himself, right? And I think, yeah, I think that, see, I don't know. I remember when I was growing up, my dad would say that um, people would become famous from the area where we, from Piedmont, and then lie about, say they were from Pittsburgh or Baltimore or something. Now, maybe that's not a real big thing, but I remember thinking that was horrible terrible thing to do. If I ever became famous, I was going to say I was from Piedmont, West Virginia, not from Cumberland, Maryland. <laughs> Freud talked about the narcissism of tiny differences, small differences, and that's a great example of that. But there are things that you could misrepresent, lie about, reinvent, self-invent. I mean, that's the great American credo, self-invention, which don't really matter that much, that don't lead to a major writer's block. But this obviously bothered him. This obviously was not that kind of thing. It kept him from fulfilling his fantasy, which was to create a great work of art. So it obviously tore him apart. And he spent lots of his time in therapy dealing with, you know, not telling people and then having them try to discover it, which is bizarre. I think he's a tragic figure. I think it's very, very sad. Um, Lynn Nesbitt, a good friend of mine, read it and said, um, she cried at the end, they were friends, and she just wept at the very end because it was sad. It was so unnecessary to me. But also it is, and I insist on this, it is an indictment of the racism in America that this very sensitive person felt that the only way that he could survive was to do that. My mentor at Yale was John Blum, John Morton Blum, the great American historian. And uh, he was the first Jew to get tenure uh, in the history department at Yale. And, and he used to tell me that the only way he could get tenure was to become an Episcopalian. <laughs> and his joke was, the first Jew with tenure at Yale is an Episcopalian. I mean, that's horrible, but that in a way is like Anatole. That's what they said about Barry Goldwater. The yeah. first Jew to be president would be a with Presbyterian. Yeah. Uh, yes. Okay, I think, but I would, I take the question, do I think that um, colleges with black anti-Semitic faculty members are doing enough to curb their, their message? I would think that, it's a, that we have to worry as much, if not more, actually, in terms of numbers, given the small number of black people in the professoriate in America about the white anti-Semites. I mean, there are far more white anti-Semitic professors in America than black anti Semites are far more white anti-Semites, period. And, um, but the, the complicated thing about a college campus is the freedom of expression. And so a professor could announce, a professor could teach, let's say, that the earth is flat and he cannot be, or she cannot be fired. A professor could teach that the world was created in seven days. I mean, I give this talk on multiculturalism and I talk about creation science. And when I do, people stand up and leave, you know, if I'm in the Bible Belt, because they think it's heresy. You know, of course the world was created in seven days, 6,666 years ago. But they have a right to teach these things. They don't have a right to teach. Uh, they don't have a right to be, in my opinion, the chairman of a department, because the chairman of a department is selected by the dean, appointed by the dean for a specific length of term. And so I'm a chairman of a department. I could be removed any day the dean decides he doesn't like my face, I and mean, there's nothing anybody can do about it. But they can't fire me for holding an idea. So, do I think that a person who's 
Let's take David Duke to pick a neutral example. First day I'm at Harvard, a kid hands me a petition and asks me to sign it as chair of AfroAm, um, protesting David Duke coming to Harvard. And I refused. And he said, well, you're going to be a Clarence Thomas. And I said, no, I think David Duke's disgusting. But I would rather go and stand up and say he was disgusting and show without demonizing him just how disgusting he is. And I said, for Christ's sake, this is Harvard. You know, we can put up with, we can have David Duke or we can have Khalid Muhammad or we can have anybody come to this campus and we could expose them for, for the idiots, their, their idiocy, we can expose them in front of a, uh, a very sensitive, intelligent audience. So what I do protest is the silence of other professors in the face of homophobia, of white racism, or uh, black anti-Semitism. I think it's important to stand up and say, I find this idea reprehensible. I find this disgusting. I find this unacceptable in this kind of environment. But no one, if, if one of the professors in Afro-American studies decided that they wanted to teach the secret relationship between blacks and Jews, no one, not me, not the president of Harvard, not God, can prevent them from doing that. Well, maybe God could. But uh, short of that, you just can't do it. So you're always walking this fine line. No, I didn't. Well, I think that it's an, I, I saw the exchange between, uh, I didn't see Charlie Rose, uh, but I saw the exchange between Abe Rosenthal and Wicker. It's in the Times, I mean, exchange. Abe had a column and then Wicker has a letter, it's today or yesterday, saying, I didn't say that, but this is what I actually meant. Now, this is a very interesting concept, which is that should black people be a third party, a third force? If um, concepts called, um, what, ceteris paribus, right, all things being equal. If the white community, as it were, if white people split their vote, and you have a large block that you can move, that makes you, makes you the man, right? It gives you an enormous amount of power. That's Wicker's argument, I take it. And certainly Chuck Stone made that argument in a book called Black Political Power in America in 1971. If they could be this moving force, and you had leaders who could go and broker the vote and say, okay, you want this vote? You gotta deliver us affirmative action. You have to stop the changing the redistricting laws and understandings, et cetera, et cetera. If we could do that, it would be um, a, a, a wonderful thing because I think that the Democratic Party takes the black vote for granted. I, I watched the thing on gay marriage tonight on CBS News. And uh, the man, uh, I can't remember his name right now, who was very active for Clinton and who said that it was disgusting that Clinton had said that no matter what, he would oppose gay marriage. And then the CBS correspondent said, yes, but you'll vote for him in the fall, won't you? He said, yes. And he says, and Bill Clinton knows that. So no matter what he does, whether it's Lonnie Guineer or whether it's affirmative action or whatever, who are we gonna vote for, Bob Dole? You know, no. <coughs> but if we could have, that's my brother there, he could not ask a question. <laughs> that's my who? brother Where? And, and my niece are in the... That's the famous Rocky? That is Rocky, my brother, right oh, there yeah. with that patch of gray in his hair. And my beautiful niece, Jennifer, who's just finished her freshman year of college. 
She's a child's a genius and is beautiful too. They can stand <laughs> up and everybody can acknowledge them. <coughs> That's an unusual patch of gray hair your brother has too. That's right, look at that. It's a spot of gray. It's a spot of gray. Yeah. That's right. But so if we were a third party, Oh, you know, it's too bad I didn't know he was here, because there was a, is there, well, it's too much water under the <laughs> it's bridge. It's too late. <laughs> too late. Uh, how about way in the back? <coughs> Sorry. Well, that's a good question. There are two, I'm going to make a confession. There are, two, um, there are two issues here. Why would I support Colin Powell? That's what you ask. Um, given my interest in, in seeing, <clears throat> excuse me, the number of poor people diminished in this country, um, we don't know what Col how Colin Powell feels about most things. We know now how he feels about abortion. We know now how he feels about affirmative action. That's, n n we know how he feels about war but not much else. Even after reading his book, we still don't know. So I'm sure that Colin Powell could say certain things that would make me not vote for him. But as of right now, I'm... Not if you're writing his speeches. <laughs> no. <laughs> he didn't exactly uh, offer me a contract <laughs> when I made him this up. Um, so, no, actually, I could never do that. I would never be a speechwriter. I mean, I would want to you, write about it. You just him. said here 10 I minutes ago. I, I know I did. You lied? No, oh. I, I said it to him, and I, I said it to you, and I said it to him. But if faced with a choice, I, I don't think I could work um, for a political person. I mean, in my heart, I would want the brother to win, which is what my confession is. The reason I like Colin Powell is I really want there to be a black president of the United States. Um, do I... You know, do I apologize for that? No. You know, my race man? Yeah. Is it romantic nationalism? Absolutely. I would like to see a brother get in the White House. But I don't want it to be Clarence Thomas. You know, I have a line, and I think I could probably live with Colin Powell. Look, I worked for, worked for Bill Clinton, meaning in my mind, right? And look at Clinton. Um, would I have voted for him had I known? Uh, yeah. You know, compared to what? Compared to what we were faced with? Absolutely. Will I vote for him again? Absolutely. You know, I mean, compared to what? Um, and that's probably, I think that Colin Powell wants to see the number of poor people diminish too. I, I think he believes, he certainly believes in the, in the, the wonders of capitalism and the, the, the marketplace. Um, but I think he wants a more humane form of capitalism. And I think that's the best that we're gonna get. I don't see a revolution on the horizon. I just don't. I don't think I ever did actually, but there, um, I, I don't think that that's gonna happen. I'm trying to figure, I am a, a centrist 
person. Charlie Rose asked, what's the difference between me and Cornel West? And I said, he's a clear-eyed progressive, and I'm in the messy, muddled middle. And that's where I am. I mean, I'm a reformist. I want to try to make the system more humane. I heard Hugh Price say not long ago that he felt that capitalism was in danger of dehumanizing itself. And um, in, in given the, you know, the extremes of poverty in this country and the, you know, the fact that we have people living on the streets, et cetera, et cetera, and we had to bring it back. I mean, we had to humanize it again. And I think that's basically Colin Powell's kind of line. But we all, we have to wait to see what his specific programs are. But I couldn't write for The New Yorker if I worked for Colin Powell, and I'd rather write for The New Yorker than almost anything except teach at Harvard. <laughs> uh, I don't think I can. I mean, there's a lot of questions I know. What do I do? It's now 9.30. Why don't, you know what we could do? Is we could end it, then you, because a lot of people kind of want to eat or something. We could, then the people who want to ask, well, you, you, you're going to sign books, and you could just ask it right into his ear. Sure, that'd right, be yeah. okay. And that way, so, and then you could talk to Rocky, who, by the way, is sitting, you're sitting right in just a row behind if what he says about my mother is true, about what his father and so forth, then that, that blonde woman there, who is my first cousin, is actually your second cousin. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> All right, thank you very, very, thank very, you. very much. Thank you very much. Thank you.